Amen. You may grab a seat. Good morning, church. It's good to see you guys. I hope you're doing well. Um, If you did not grab one on your way in, um, we are giving out scripture journals to kind of start our study in the book of Joshua this morning. So if you want one of those and didn't get one, just raise your hand and we'll make sure that Theo um, or one of the other guys gets one to you. Just keep your hand up and we would just ask that you bring those back with you each week. Um, that you can also uh, take them to a gospel community if, you're, uh, if you are plugged into a gospel community uh, and just bring those around with you. Take notes. Uh, hopefully, uh, this will be a bit of encouragement to you. And so, um, I, full, full disclosure, um, we are not doing a special Mother's Day sermon today. That, uh, so if you're, if you're here for a special Mother's Day sermon, uh, my apologies to you. But let me, let me just say this before we dive into our text this morning. Um, moms, thank you guys. Thank you. From the bottom of my heart, thank you. I see it in my own wife every day, the amount of sacrifice and work that you guys do for your kids, uh, the hard work of loving on your children, sleepless nights, uh, amongst other things. So thank you. Um, If you are a mom here this morning and you feel like what I just said doesn't describe you and that you failed, Jesus loves you. He does. And And here's the other thing. He loves your kids more than you do. And so press into him. You're doing a good job. Keep going. God's got this. If you're here this morning and you're struggling with loss of a child or infertility or maybe the loss of your own mother, we love you. We love to pray with you after service. I know that this is a day of celebration for some, but for some of you guys, it's not. This isn't a happy day. The day that brings up sadness and sorrow. Jesus loves you as well. He does. He cares deeply about you and he wants to meet you in that. And so if you would like, we would love to pray with you after service and ask the Lord to comfort you. So, um, happy Mother's Day. We love you guys. Let's dive into our text in Joshua this morning. And we're going to be going through this book over the course of the next probably 11 to 12 weeks. Um, and so we're not going to hit every verse. We're not even going to hit every single chapter uh, in Joshua. But I, but I do think that we will get a really good look at um, this book and what God teaches us about himself throughout this story. this story, And hopefully, right, we'll be encouraged both by uh, what God does through Israel, but most of all, that we'll be encouraged by God and his faithfulness as we study this, this book together. And so I want to start off before we look at the text by kind of posing a question to you. And hopefully you'll spend some time thinking through Uh, this question this week. Where do you muster up the courage to do what you need to do in your life, especially when something seems impossible or difficult? Where do you muster the strength and the courage to do what's needed to be done, especially when things are hard? Some of us do this better than others. Right? And we all face situations and seasons like, like what I'm describing, where we know what we need to do, or we know at least what the outcome probably needs to be, but we don't know how to execute what we're going to do or how it's going to be done. Right? Let me give you an example. Right? So as you guys can see me, as I stand before you here this morning, I'm 5'6 and 145 pounds soaking wet. 
So not, you know, the bastion of athletic prowess. And in high school, I made the genius decision my junior year of going out and playing football for the first time ever in my life. Um, I was, you know, I mean, my, my ancestors are the hobbits, if you've ever seen Lord of the Rings. So we're not, a, we're, we're a wee folk. And so, you know, when kids were playing uh, football in elementary school and middle school and even into high school where they would play like in the recreational league, you know how they have like a weight limit for football and then a weight requirement? I never met the weight requirement. That's how small I was. I'd be like, Dad, I don't want to play football. He's like, dude, you don't weigh enough. Like, I cannot get you in the league. And your mom thinks you're going to die. And she probably would have been right, by the way. And so I always played soccer because of that. But finally, you know, I get to high school. I'm like, I can do this. I love football. I'm going to do this. And so we are in the first day of two-a-days, August, hot, 102 degrees, right? Like some of you guys that played football in your life, you have no idea how bad it was. Like you guys can only practice once a day. They have to give water breaks. They didn't do any of that stuff when I played. So I, I walk out there and the football coach goes, Oklahoma drill, let's go. I was like, I don't know what that is. Someone explain it to me. If I could describe the Oklahoma drill to you, it's basically where small people are put to open shame in front of everyone else. What they do is they line people up, no matter what size they are, and then you just run into each other and see who wins. At 5'1 and 110 pounds, guess how often I won? Very, very little. So I'm watching this drill go on, and I'm like, what am I going to do? And so I walk out for the first time. Coach blows the whistle. I run at our running back. I hit him, and I just slide down him as if I've run into a pole. And he keeps going. And so my, my defensive backs coach, he runs over to me. He's like, he looks at me, and he gets down, and he's like, buddy, I admire your tenacity, but you're going to get killed if you try that again. You need to get creative, right? Use your courage but go for the ankles and play dirty. I'm like, okay. So next time, right, we're in there, comes up. Drill starts out like this. You're down like this, right? Jill starts. I don't even come up out of my stance. I dive straight for the guy's ankles, take them out, and I win the drill. My coach is like, we're over here. We're like, yeah, 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 right? And I shared this story because I knew what I needed to do, right? I needed to take down the guy in front of me. It looked like an impossible task because it was physically. And I had never been trained on even what I was supposed to be doing in the first place because, I, because here's the deal. like I lacked the ability to do what I needed to do. I, I lacked the requisite strength that was necessary to do what I needed to do. And I lacked the will or the courage to find a way through. But my coach's presence and encouragement and teaching gave me the strength and courage to do what I needed to do to persevere the next time I came into that situation. And the story of Joshua has a lot of parallels to that. Joshua is in a similar position where he has been given the task of taking Israel into the land of Canaan, dispossessing the inhabitants of that land, and establishing a nation out of a group of nomads and former slaves. Not exactly a recipe for strength, and military conquest, and setting up a nation. And Joshua, as a young leader, feels ill-equipped, untalented to lead these people. And what we're going to see as we study this book together over the course of the next several weeks 
is that God's response to this is going to consistently, he is going to consistently remind Joshua and Israel to be strong and courageous because he is with them and they can trust in his promises to hand over what has been promised to them. So let's look at the text starting in verse 1 of Joshua 1. It says, After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant. Okay, so Moses is dead. That's, that's where we are at in the, in the narrative and the history of Israel. So first five books of the Bible have been about creation and then Abraham and then Abraham's descendants. And then we get to the Exodus and we hear the story of Moses and how God has taken his people out of uh, Egypt and rescued them. And when we get to this part in the narrative of the history of Israel, Moses, this great leader who led them out of captivity and slavery, is now dead. Israel has no leader. And Israel has struggled to do what they were supposed to do and, and to obey God with Moses. How do you think they're going to be without him? I mean, when, when Mo, I don't know if you guys are familiar with the story in the book of Exodus or not. When Moses goes up on top of Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments from the Lord, he's gone for maybe two days. He gets back. And, and his, his brother is leading them to worship a golden calf. That's how much these people were struggling, right? God has delivered them. He's parted the Red Sea. He's caused them to escape Pharaoh and his military and his grasp. God's done all these things for Israel. And the moment Moses disappears for 48 hours, they're worshiping a new God. Th these are the type of people we're talking about here. And so, as you can probably imagine... Right With Moses being dead, what's going to grip Israel as a nation? Fear. What, what are we going to do? We've lost our leader. We've lost the one that God has chosen right, to redeem us and get us out of slavery and enter into the promised land. And what we see in the book of Joshua is that God is going to show up and answer that question of what now? What do we do now that Moses is gone? And we're going to see that God is going to reveal to them that he is faithful to the promise he made all the way back to Abraham. To make a people out of Abraham's descendants that they would be God's people and that he would give them a land to be a nation in. Right? And so when we get to verse 2, Look at what God says to Joshua. He says, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. So there's two words in that, in that verse I want you to notice. Okay, The first one is that word, therefore. And, and you guys, any, anyone that's spent any time at Aletheia, you know that I love to point out whenever we see that term in Scripture. And the reason is, is the author of the text there is trying to get you to see that there's a major transition occurring in thought. Now, we're two verses into this book, so how could there be a major transition in thought? 
So what is happening here is God is communicating to Joshua, there's about to be a major transition in the historical narrative and the history of Israel and what's been going on at this point. And so if you know anything about Israel, right, there is a story all the way back in the book of Numbers where at the end of it, Moses is told he will not enter the promised land. Let's go look at that story together in Numbers chapter 20, starting in verse 2. He says, Now there was no water for the congregation, and they assembled themselves together and against, excuse me, against Moses and against Aaron. And the people quarreled with Moses and said, Would that we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness that we should die here, both we and our cattle? If you're familiar with the story of the people of Israel in in the wilderness, this is a frequent occurrence. They're constantly asking Moses why he's trying to kill them. So you get to verse 5, right? And this is what it says. And why have you made us come out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place. It is no place for grains or figs or vines or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. Then Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron, your brother. And tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. And Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he commanded him. So, you're, so here you are, right? You have the nation of Israel out in the wilderness. They're, they're, they feel like they're about to die. They're asking Moses why he's trying to kill them. And so Moses and Aaron go before God and God meets them. And God says, hey, I'm going to provide. I'm going to provide for you now. Then look at what happens in verse 10. Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Hear now, you rebels. Shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice, and water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank and their livestock. So you're like, yay, hooray, right? We've done it. But look at verse 12. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me, to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. And so Moses doesn't fully follow what God has told him to do, and his lack of obedience displayed to Israel that they need not listen or trust in God. And this is a problem, right? Because here you have the guy who's receiving God's word and giving it to them, disobeying the Lord. So this is a big deal. And so God looks at Moses and said, you will not take them into the promised land. You're going to get them close, but you're not going to go in. And when we get to verse 2 of Joshua chapter 1, when God says, therefore, What he's indicating to Joshua is my discipline over Israel and my discipline over Moses is finished. Now is the time for me to fully fulfill the promise that I had given to Abraham and to your people as you left Egypt. 
And so we see this, right? Because he says even this. He says, he says go now. And this matters because this would have been the least likely time for the people to try to march across the Jordan and start a military conquest when their leader has just passed away. But God is doing this so that Israel will know that it was him that had led them through this and not Moses. You see, even regularly when you get to the New Testament, consistently amongst the people of Israel, that they have a great amount of respect for the fathers of the faith. Often forgetting that those fathers of the faith were just simple men who were blessed and faithful to God. And they place their trust and their hope in what those men have done instead of what God has done. And here when you see here in Joshua chapter 1, God speaking to Joshua, he's saying to him, I'm going to use you, but the glory is going to go to me. The glory for deliverance and salvation is going to go to me. So go over this Jordan into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Just take the people because this land is theirs and I'm giving it to him. Look at what he says in verses three through five. He says, then the king of Jericho sent, excuse me, every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river of the Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. See see what he's saying to Joshua as he's given this command for Joshua to take the people into the land. As every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you just as I promised Moses. He's God, God's saying, look, Joshua, I'm keeping my promise to the people. I'm going to give you guys the land I'm going to deliver you. That promise to Abraham, that promise to Isaac, to Jacob, and to Moses. If you go back to Genesis chapter 12, right? I mean, this is the promise that is on his mind, right? In Genesis 12, it says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God is saying to Joshua, Joshua, that promise is about to be fulfilled. At the, the culmination of God's people, this is about to be fulfilled. And I want you to just notice that there is a pattern we see inside of Scripture with both God promising something to his people, but also how he expects a response out of us. Right? What we see, for example, with this particular command to Joshua, we see God gives this promise to Abraham and then he tells Joshua that the promise of this land is coming to fulfillment. And we see that God is going to fulfill that promise through Moses and then ultimately through Joshua. But also we see that there is a expectation 
of obedience, both from Joshua and from the nation of Israel. And I point that out to us because I think this is really, really important, especially knowing kind of the theological leaning and bend of a a number of people in this church, my own included, right? Guys, we are not robots. We are not robots in this room this morning. And in our our, our study of of God's sovereignty and, and how salvation works out and how we respond to God and his word, because we do believe in the sovereignty of God, we, we believe almost robotically that we have no role to play or no responsibility in our lives at all. Hey, just everything falls on the sovereignty of God because God is sovereign. And that is theologically and biblically true, the statement I made. But there's also an expectation of God that we respond in faith to him as a display of that work of what God is doing. We see God chooses, God keeps his promise to preserve those whom he chooses, and then we see that those that have been chosen respond in faith to God. We see a similar pattern both for Israel and the church. That God chooses, he predestines, as Paul says in the book of Ephesians, but that in that there is a response to that salvation. And this is why it's so complicated and why I tend not to enjoy debates amongst those that would call themselves Calvinists or Armenians or whatever else in between. Because it's here's the deal, guys. It's far more complicated than you dare imagine because you're finite and God's not. Right? Just imagine this for a second, right? When we use terms like predestination or chosen for God. We're using terminology that is human in language, describing things that are happening in a a finite period and moment in time. But if God is really God, he exists outside of that because he is infinite. So good luck trying to figure that out on the plane of time and chronology. God currently exists in eternity past, eternity present, and eternity future. If your brain's exploding, good. That's God. That is our God. And so we want to be faithful to the text to both see the sovereignty of God in choosing and saving and leading and delivering, but also knowing that God places a level of responsibility upon us to obey and respond to his commands. And there's an expectation of Joshua here to both look at God's promises, see God fulfilling those promises, and then respond to him in obedience to lead Israel across the Jordan into the land that has been promised. He says in verse 5, Joshua, just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave or forsake you. God understands that what Joshua is about to embark on is an almost impossible task for a young man who was never led before. The Bible doesn't say this, but I imagine that there was some fear and trepidation on Joshua's part as God is speaking to him here. And the reason why I feel that way is because I know the story of these people that Joshua is about to lead. Forty years earlier, they had ignored him and Caleb 
to enter the promised land. God had sent 12 spies into the promised land, and the only two that came back and gave a good report were Joshua and Caleb. And they ignored him. And they gave in to fear. And as they stood there, they said, we lack the technology, we lack the resources for a military campaign. Well, I doubt they got those in the 40 years in the wilderness where there's clearly nothing there. And God says to Joshua, trust me. Trust me, Joshua, you can do this because I am going to be with you. Church, hear me this morning as we, as we hear God say that to Joshua. The God of Joshua is our God. The same God who is faithful to Joshua is the same God we worship every day. He is not different. He is faithful to the end. And we have a God who has given us a similar charge as Joshua and promised to be with us. God looks at us, church, as we stare down a world that pushes back against their creator, who wants to deny his existence, who wants to deny his power, who wants to deny his authority and go their own way. And God looks at us as his bride and as his church and, and asks us and demands of us to declare his glory and what he has done to the world around us. Right, the same way that Israel was freed from Egypt, that they were preserved in the wilderness and then given the land as we study the book of Joshua. And we'll see that over the course of the next 11 weeks. Right, Church, God has freed us from slavery to sin and death. He is promised and is keeping us until the day of Christ Jesus. And one day he will return in future glory and we will worship at his feet for eternity. We have so much in common in this season with where Israel is at. Look at Matthew 28 with me. These are the last words of Jesus before he ascends into the throne room of heaven. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe you all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Church, we are called like Israel Declare the glory of what God has done for us to an unbelieving world around us. Declare the excellencies of Jesus and what he has done. How Christ laid down his life and died for our sin, but rose from the grave in triumph over that. We are called to respond to that to that work of God, to his choosing of us, to that salvation in obedience, to respond to Jesus' command to make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them. 
And I love this, right? Because Jesus gives the same promise that the Father gives to Joshua. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. God is with us. If you are in Christ this morning, you have, you have both an impossible task laid before you and yet a faithful and able God who promises that he is with you even till the end of the age, just as he was with Joshua. And, it, and it's, I, I hear you, right? Because I, I know the pushback to this, right? It's easy to say like, well, you know, like, yes, I see the parallels and I see God's promises, but how, how are we supposed to do this, right? How do, how do we respond to the promises of God and live in obedience on mission in light of that? I think if we look at what God says in verses six through nine, Joshua, we can take great comfort and encouragement from that. Look at what he says, starting in verse 6. He says, Joshua, be strong and courageous. For you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you will go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you be strong and courageous? Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Here's God's call to Joshua. Joshua, I am with you. And because I'm with you, be strong and courageous with what you're about to walk into. He says that three times. He says it in verse 6, he says it in verse 7, and he says it again in verse 9. And then he shares with Joshua this pattern of God's promises and commands and how we respond to this. If you look through verses 6 through 9, you'll see these four things. You'll see the the promise of the inheritance being fulfilled. He says, you will cause the people to inherit the land. There's the promise of God. Joshua, you will do this. This is the promise I'm giving you. The same way that we see in Acts 1.8 when Jesus looks at his disciples and says, you will be my witnesses. Right? It's a promise. Right? You will do this. You will go into Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You will be my witnesses. Joshua, you will be the one who leads the people into the promised land. And then he says this but act according to the law of Moses and meditate on it. Do not turn to the left or to the right. Right, there's the command. Joshua, I'm going to give the land to you and your people. Obey me. Obey what I have asked of you and your people so that it might go well with you. And then then he makes his promise. And know that obedience will bring blessing and success, right? He says, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written, for then 
You will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Right? Promise. Command. Promise. If, if you follow my word, it will go well with you, Joshua. If you obey, you will have success. And then he says this in verse 9, right? Don't be paralyzed by fright. Right? There's the command. Don't be fearful. Be strong. Be courageous. And then another promise. I am with you. He says, do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Wherever you go, God is with you. We're going to see over the course of our study in this book, God's faithfulness to this pattern that he calls Joshua to. This pattern of believing in the promises of God and and, in responding to that belief, acting in obedience and in acting in obedience, seeing God's faithfulness again to his promises and in response to that faithfulness again, obedience and being strong and courageous. It's a pattern littered throughout this entire book that he establishes. But the point I want to make to us this morning is that God's call to us, his church, in fulfilling the great commission of Matthew chapter 28, is that God looks at us and calls us like Joshua to be strong and courageous and to observe the same pattern of faithfulness that Joshua observed both in seeing the promises of God fulfilled time and time again and responding in that faithfulness of God by obeying him and trusting him. But if we look into the, the, the New Testament, right, what we see is this pattern for the church, right? We see God giving this inheritance in Christ and in that a call to advance the gospel in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18 through 20, right? Look at what Paul says. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Right? So see what Paul's saying there? He's, he says, hey, church, God's rescued us. It's already done. God has rescued us in Christ. And in that rescue, he has given us a message or ministry of reconciliation. And look at what he says next. That is, in Christ, God was not, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, And here it is, right? Here's the command to respond in obedience and what we are called to do if you are a follower of Jesus here this morning. We are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. 
We have been reconciled to God, and as a part of that inheritance of reconciliation, God has given us the ministry of reconciliation, and that we are called in obedience as a church, right? This is not a job just for pastors. This is not a job for people in full-time vocational ministry. This is not a job for the long-term Christian who has read the whole Bible and understands what, what they're supposed to do. This isn't just for the really, really good Christians and not the bad Christians. No, this is the call of God on anyone who believes and trusts in Christ for salvation, that you are to take the ministry of reconciliation forward everywhere you go in your life. Whether it is with your neighbor, whether it is with your family, whether it is with your coworker, whether it is with your children, whether it is with your grandchildren, that God has called you to respond to him. And in that, we respond and meditate on God and his goodness and his law and his gospel. And one of the ways that we display God's goodness to the world around us and of life change in Christ is by responding in obedience and meditating on his law, just as Joshua was called to. There's a, there's a, a number of thoughts on this that go throughout the church, right? And I see two equal errors that the church frequently makes in teaching on how we respond to God's law. Right? There's legalism and there's licentiousness. We see God's law, we see God's call to us to respond and obey him, and we make one of two grave errors. We either believe that we can somehow fully fulfill God's law ourselves, and we become functioning Pharisees like Jesus dealt with in the New Testament. I can follow God's law perfectly. I can do this. Look how obedient I am, right? We end up being like the Pharisee who stood on the street corner puffing his chest, said, God, thank you. I'm not like that guy. If you're familiar with that story in the Gospels, the Pharisee is not the hero. But the other error we make is we, is we have this big view of God's grace, and I'm thankful for that. We have a big view of the gospel. And so then we look at the law of God and his call to obedience and trust in him. And we say, well, I don't need to do that because Jesus is my get out of jail free card. And we cheapen what Christ has done for us because we make his payment worth nothing because we seek not obedience in the holiness of our God. And both are grave, grave errors. But if we live in light of the gospel, the truth that we are sinners in rebellion towards our creator, but that God in his infinite love and mercy and in keeping the covenant to Abraham, thousands of years later, sent his son to die in our place as a propitiation for our sins, as a substitute, for the, for the certificate of death that hung over us, as Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, right? That our trespasses might no longer be counted against us because Jesus paid for them in full. That Jesus rose from the dead three days later and has offered us new life in him and has given us the promised Holy Spirit. And with that promised Holy Spirit, we live out this pattern just like Joshua. Faith, repentance, obedience. Faith, repentance, obedience. Consistently and as 
we do that. Obedience to God breeds confidence. Because here's the truth, guys. If you live like a legalist, you'll either right, be confused thinking that you actually live up to God's standards while never doing so. Or you know that you're lying to yourself and you'll constantly, silently heap condemnation on yourself while pretending in front of everyone else that you have it all together. If you live licentiously, you'll never know the full freedom of what God has saved you to. Because God didn't just save you so that you might be forgiven of your sin, but he saved you both to be forgiven of your sin, but to be freed into full life with him, which includes knowing him, loving him, following his commands and law, and knowing them as good. And gospel living frees us to be fully known at our lowest and yet fully loved by God, knowing that when you pursue obedience in Christ and you fail, his grace is sufficient for you. You take hold of the promises that God has given you in Christ. You repent of your sin. You hang it on the cross in him, and you walk forward in obedience, declaring the majesty and glory of God, just like we're called to in 2 Corinthians 5. And God promises us that in that his presence is with us just as it was with Joshua. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Church, as we study this book together for the next several weeks, we see Joshua step into the promised land. We see him lead Israel in military campaign as we see God's glory declared to the nations around them as they move into this land and as we see God establish a people who were not a people. It is the same type of call we are living in right now. Church, we are a people who were not a people if it were not for Christ. Many of us in this room have nothing in common except Jesus. And that bond goes deeper than any hobby, any interest, any education level, any race, any cultural background, any socioeconomic status. The gospel overcomes all of those and gives us an identity in our God and our creator and God asks us to respond to that calling to step out and declare the glory of God and share the gospel. So here's what I'm going to ask us to do, right? If you got one of these, right, inside of it, you may have noticed there was a strange note card inside of it. You're probably wondering, what is this doing in here? Right, here's what I want you to do. Right, for the last several years, right, we've been doing something here at our church, and hopefully we'll do it long after I'm dead and gone, and hopefully this church still exists and they have a much better looking, much taller, and much better preacher up here, right? And it's something that we've called the one campaign, right? And it's where we ask you to think of one person in your life who has not trusted in Jesus as their Lord and Savior and given their life to him. And they, I would ask that you just do this for me. Will you take a moment and write the name 
of someone on this card who does not know the Lord yet. Here's the deal. Some of you guys in this room this morning may not know the Lord yet. You're here because mom made you come. You're here because some friend or girlfriend or boyfriend won't stop pestering you about coming to their church. Right? We're glad you're here. You write your name down and ask God to reveal himself to you. And then on the back, would you do this? Will you write down, turn into your scripture journal, go to Joshua 1, verse 9, on page 8. And will you write down that verse on the back? And as you pray for that person, as we study this book together, right, as we ask God to do the impossible, the same way he did for Joshua in delivering them into the promised land and giving the land over to them, will you ask God to do the impossible? Save that which is lost, just like you were. And will you keep this in your scripture journal for the weeks and months ahead? Every time you open it up, you'll see that name. And when you see it, will you pray for that person? And will you ask God to help you to be strong and courageous in witnessing to that person that you might declare the excellencies of Christ? If the name on that card is your name, ask God to send somebody in your life that will be strong and courageous and reveal why they have trusted in Christ and why they are a Christian. And then will you step out in obedience loving God, and declaring his glory to the world around you. And let's see God be faithful to that promise.